The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will, be, it, will, it will be revealed by fire, and then the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. For if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but it is only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Man, you guys can grab a seat. Good morning. It's, uh, it's super fun for my heart to be here with you guys today. I love baby dedication and uh, to be here and see the life of God in this church makes me really glad. Uh, I also want to give love and greetings to all the grandparents that are here. I'm so thankful for godly grandparents that engage and serve and uh, love and help the next generation. So I I'm so thankful, man. That was really beautiful, really powerful. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors of Frontline. In 2005, my wife Nancy and I planted Frontline Church in downtown Oklahoma City. And today I get to serve as the lead pastor of that congregation. And then I get to, as time allows, to encourage, love, and serve some of our other congregations. And I want to take a moment before we pray to just name the life of God here, to bless the work of God here. The fact that there's new life with these babies is amazing. It's amazing. And the fact that God is generous with his grace and his mercy to bring new life and to cause dead hearts to come alive is amazing. And, and the faithfulness of God in the few years that we've been a church in this city is amazing. So I'm thankful. I love you. I bring loving greetings from all of our congregations, and they're proud of you. They're praying for you, and we're all thankful that we get to do this together. So let's pray together, and we're going to dive in and do some work that's really timely for our cultural moment. Father, I want to bless you for your generosity. We're literally surrounded by your kindness. Thank you for the gift of motherhood and the gift of fatherhood. Thank you for the gift of grandfathers and grandmothers. Thank you for the gift of children. And thank you for the ultimate gift, the greatest gift, the gift of your son. 
And I pray today as we open your word that you would give us eager hearts. Um, I pray that where our hearts feel dry and disconnected from the wonder of who you are, that this would be a moment where you breathe fresh life into us. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in this room and that you would help us to love Jesus and to be shaped to look more like Jesus and to follow Jesus into the city of Yukon and the surrounding area with good news on our lips and with good deeds done through our hands. So meet us today. Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. Uh, We love you. We can't understand the word you inspired unless you help us. So help us today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, if you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to walk through this text today. And as we dive into this, I'm actually really thankful that I get to be here today for this particular passage. Uh, A lot of my heart, and I think a lot of my calling, is to try to encourage love and serve leaders in the Christian church. And the last decade of Christian leadership in the West has been tumultuous, to say the least. It's been a tough decade, and in particular, the last five years could be described as carnage among Christian leaders. It's been five years of seeing leaders that I love not only walk away from Christian ministry, but I've seen some walk away from Jesus. It's been five years of scandal, where we've seen prominent ministries implode and explode. It's been five years where confusion around what it is to be a leader in the church and what it is to be a member in the church have increased dramatically. Leaders are confused in our cultural moment. I know a lot of Christian leaders that have gone passive out of fear that if they preach God's word, if they correct and rebuke and encourage all according to scripture, that every bit of correction will be counted as abuse and they'll be canceled by the mob. I know other Christian leaders in this moment that have grown silent out of fear that if they preach God's word when it comes to unpopular doctrines, the mob's going to come for them. I've also seen other Christian leaders over the course of the last five years with patience and fatherly presence preach God's word, lean towards God's people, not abandon their posts. And I've even seen some of those who are godly and gracious men also get canceled in the last five years. And there is what I believe a minority, but a vocal minority of pastors that are indeed domineering, that are bullies, that act as if the church belonged to them, that throw their weight around. And they have brought much reproach on the church of Jesus in the last five years. Members are also confused in our cultural moment about Christian leadership. It seems that the two hobbies for a lot of Christians include elevating leaders to platforms that are only fitting for God himself, supporting celebrity culture, acting as if pastors were some sort of social media influencer, and then in turn delighting in the demise when those leaders collapse and fall off the platform. And today in our text, though the Apostle Paul is addressing specific confusions in the church at Corinth, He's addressing their issues. This is one of the most prophetic texts for our cultural moment if we're going to understand what is the heart of Christian leadership and what is the heart of being a member that uses your gifts for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. 
And so today, the Apostle Paul is going to follow on with the big idea that he's been writing to the Corinthians about the centrality of God. He's written to us about the centrality of God's wisdom instead of man's wisdom. He's written to us about the centrality of God's might instead of man's might. And today, he's going to write to the Corinthians about two big confusions. The first confusion in the city of Corinth among the Christians has to do with confusion between what leaders do in the church and what only God can do. They've elevated leaders to a place of prominence that only is fitting for God. And the second place of confusion is they have started to build on the eternal foundation of Jesus with things that are temporary and passing away. So take your Bible. I'm going to show you these two big ideas, and then we're going to walk through the text together, and then we're going to pray. Number one, Paul would write, don't confuse the church's leaders with the church's God. And this is exactly what's happening in the city of Corinth. They told one another that they had allegiance and some measure of identity and ownership in relationship to their favorite teachers. Paul wrote in verse four that some say, I follow Paul, and others say, I follow Apollos. And Paul rebukes them because this is carnal and immature thinking. And what Paul does next is he begins to highlight the differences between God and leaders that serve the church. And the first thing he points out is the heartbeat of all Christian leadership. That's that leaders are servants. Leaders don't own anything. Leaders are not masters of anything. Shepherds in the church serve the chief shepherd, and they love and serve God's sheep. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. This is the very heartbeat and the beginning of all Christian leadership. Because Jesus himself, our master and king, said that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, the heartbeat of all Christian ministry has to reflect the heartbeat of our king and master by not pretending that we are lords, dictators, or little popes. We are servants. And our job is to offer service to God and service to God's people as those that own nothing in the church. We don't own the people. We don't own the money. We don't own the resources. God owns all of it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. We're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul is saying that he and Apollos, two different leaders, are fellow workers under God's authority, and he uses two metaphors to describe the church. The church is God's farm, not Paul's farm. The church is God's building, not Apollos' building. God owns it all. He gets all the glory. In addition, Paul's going to point out that leaders serve in both diversity and unity. And both matter. Look at diversity in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered. Both Paul and Apollos had different assignments from God. They had different gifts from God. They had different strengths from God. And what we know about the rest of Paul's ministry as we follow along through the course of 1 Corinthians is that Paul had different weaknesses than Apollo. And in the midst of that diversity, what we find is that God's manifold wisdom is displayed by not just having one leader in the church, but by having many leaders in the church. And in the diversity of gifts and strengths and weaknesses, the wisdom of God gets put on display in that diversity. And in the midst of their diversity, what we also find is there's profound unity. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Both Paul and Apollos, though diverse in their assignments and diverse in their gifts, are working together to serve the one Lord, to advance the one faith, to baptize people into the one baptism, to serve one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So listen, it's absurd, it's absolutely absurd for the Corinthians to gather around their favorite teacher to compare various leaders, to judge various leaders based on their preferences. Because God in his wisdom is the one that distributes both the diversity of gifts and the unity of the spirit. And this is one of the things I love most about our church is that I get to serve with brothers, with fellow pastors that are different than me. I love getting to follow the leadership of your lead pastor, Chad Puckett. I love the earnestness of this man. I love the pastoral care of this man. I love his heart for you and the heart for the church. And I love the fact that there are deficiencies in my leadership. There's weaknesses and failures in my leadership that the strength that God's implanted into him makes me better. And in the midst of the diversity and unity of a leadership community with plural elders and many leaders, what we find is that God's wisdom and grace gets put on display. In addition, what we find is that leaders are called to labor, but God's the one that does all the hard work. Leaders labor, but God gives the growth. Look at verse eight. Paul writes, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul is an apostle of grace. It's all grace for Paul. But grace is not the excuse to not labor. Grace is the fuel to labor. And elsewhere, Paul's going to write to the Corinthians that he worked harder than all their other pastors. This is really important because to be a Christian leader, to be called to the work of eldering, teaching, preaching, and shepherding is to be work. Pastors are to work really hard. They're not to be men of leisure. They're not to be men that are lazy. They're to be men that move towards the fray that are willing to get bumped and bruised and battered by giving their life away for the mission of God. But in the midst of their labor, here's what we find. Neither Paul nor Apollos could do a single thing of eternal significance without God pouring out his spirit. Look at verse six. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Here's what Paul is saying. I, Paul, am no big deal. Apollos is no big deal. And I would add to that, Josh Curry is no big deal. Chad Puckett is no big deal because there's not a single thing of eternal significance and power that either of us can create or manufacture. We can't save people. We can't transform people. We can't change people. We can't distribute the gifts of the Spirit. We can't build that which is eternal unless God meets us in the labor and demonstrates his kindness and his grace through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And what this means for all of us, and this is really important, what this means is that ultimately, ultimately, the leaders of the church don't belong to the members of the church. They belong to God. Now, that doesn't mean that the leaders aren't accountable to the members of the church. They indeed are accountable. But the members of the church are to relate to the leaders of the church through Jesus Christ, through his word and through his desire and through his will. And in addition to that, it means that the leaders don't own the people of the church. They are to relate to the people through the grace of Jesus and according to the desire of Jesus revealed in his word. And in the midst of all this, what we find is that if we 
if we do a good job of differentiating between what God does and what leaders do, we'll be free from factions and divisions and celebrity culture elevating leaders too highly, and we'll be free from cultivating leadership cultures where leaders are either domineering, acting as if the people belong to them, or cowardly, being unwilling to fight for what's true and willing to rebuke and correct sin and error. And in the midst of all that, what we find is that Jesus gives leaders to the church not to do whatever they want to do, but to follow Christ in the formation of Jesus's people. So we have God-centered wisdom. That was chapter one and chapter two. We have God-centered work, which was chapter, the end of chapter two through the Holy Spirit. And now we have Paul introducing the idea of God-centered leadership in the church. And what he does next is he gives us a bit of a feeling for what God-centered leadership should feel like. What would it look like if members and leaders alike were centered on Jesus and didn't confuse the eternal with the passing away? Now, I want you to follow along and do a little work here because this is essential if we're gonna continue forward in faithfulness as a church. What Paul points out is that the church has one foundation, Jesus Christ crucified and raised again. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus has one foundation and one foundation alone. And if the church of Jesus has any other foundation, it is not a church. What Paul is pointing out is that the church is built on the eternal wisdom of God in the gospel. Her identity and her essence, her belief and her practice is built on Jesus. She is chosen, redeemed, sanctified, glorified, justified, adopted, filled, and sent all to the finished work of Jesus. The church exists for Jesus and through Jesus according to the sovereign plan of God the, God the Father in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is going to do next is point out that if that's true, and it is, if the church's beginning and end is the glory of God in Jesus, if our foundation is Jesus, then the way that leaders build in particular and the way that members build in general has to be congruent with the foundation. It should match the foundation, reflect the foundation, and adorn the foundation. Look at verse 12. What is built on the foundation is to be like the foundation, starting in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Here's what he's doing. Um, gold, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw is not a mysterious allegory where we have to figure out what corresponds to each one. What Paul is saying is really straightforward and it's really powerful. He's saying the foundation of Jesus is the eternal wisdom of God that lasts forever. It's what will last beyond the great day, the, the day of judgment. And the wisdom of the world, Paul pointed out in chapter two, is passing away. And what Paul is saying is that there's a way to build on the foundation that is Jesus in the church with that which is eternal because it flows from and looks like the person and work of Jesus. And there's a way to build on the foundation of Jesus with wood, hay, and straw 
that's temporary because it's importing the wisdom of the world that seems wise, but is actually foolish into the church. What Paul's concerned about is that the liturgy of the church, the doctrine of the church, the teaching of the church, the mission of the church, the ministries of the church, that everything that the church does is built on the foundation of Jesus in such a way that the building is like the foundation, that it's congruent. And what had happened in Corinth is the opposite of that. Here's what had started to happen after Paul left Corinth. They had a foundation laid by Paul the apostle, which is Jesus, his death and resurrection, which is the wisdom of God. And then all of a sudden you had leaders in the church at Corinth that started to import Greek Sophia, Greek wisdom. And they started to build on the foundation of Jesus with Greek wisdom, things that seem really wise to the world, but things that God says are temporary, foolish, and passing away. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what we have to apply to ourselves is that the constant danger in the local church on this side of the return of Jesus is that we're always tempted to build on Jesus things that don't belong on the foundation of Jesus, to import the wisdom of the world into the church and to act like it's gonna last. And the problem is it doesn't. It won't last. It'll get revealed and it'll get burned up. So at the risk of not getting invited back, I don't know that the temptation for us is the same as it was for the Corinthians. Like I don't feel like in 2022, the pull of the world is for us to import Greek philosophical ideas, Greek Sophia into the church. But I think we're, we're tempted and pulled at every turn to bring the wood, hay, and straw of worldly wisdom into the church and to build on it. And I'm seeing churches not just get burned up as it gets revealed on the great day, I'm seeing churches implode and get burned up as they do it today. So I wanna give you a few examples, a few things to think about. We can build with the wood, hay, and the straw of consumerism. Because the wisdom of the world, especially in this part of the world, the wisdom of the world says church is a business. And members are customers, and the customer's always right. So let the direction of the church be shaped by felt needs and simply follow the felt needs of the church. And even more insidiously, the wisdom of the world says Jesus is a great product. And if you follow Jesus and worship Jesus, you can get Jesus to give you the things that you really need to be happy. Jesus will be a means to an end. So if you worship Jesus, you'll get the spouse you dreamed about, or you'll get the family that you always dreamed about or the job you always dreamed about. And in the most grotesque examples, if you just worship and pray to Jesus, you'll get the prosperity that you always dreamed about. And the problem with that teaching is that the wisdom of God says something really different than that. The wisdom of God doesn't say that we're consumers. The wisdom of God says that we're called to be disciples that carry a cross. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, consumerism is not wise because Jesus is not a means to the end. Jesus is the end. <laughs> and whether you get all those other things that can be wonderful, the gift of a good spouse, a great job, whether you have health or whether you're sick, the wisdom of God says that Jesus is the foundation that's sure that we're to build our lives on, just as we sang a couple of minutes ago. 
The wisdom of the world says we can build with nationalism. The message of nationalism says that your country can be the kingdom, that your political party or your elected official can be your messiah. There's been in the last decade or so an increasingly messianic tone to all of our elections with both people on the left and the right. Your nation can be your ultimate hope for security and home. Now, I want you to really hear me be clear on this because it's a good thing to be a citizen of your country and to care about your country. I love this country. I'm really proud that my son, our baby, is at Marine Corps boot camp right now serving his country, preparing to be a Marine. I'm gonna be that dad with proud Marine parent all over my pickup truck. But listen, This is really important because the wisdom of God is contrary to nationalism. Hear me say this, because the Bible says that we're strangers and exiles on the earth waiting for our true country that we only see now by faith. And the wisdom of God says that your allegiance is not blind allegiance to a party or a politician, but it's full obedience to Jesus, a king. And the wisdom of God says, whatever your political affiliation is, that all leaders and elected officials will be judged not by a party platform, but according to the eternal word of God. We can build with identity politics. The wisdom of the world wants to stoke the fire of enmity and division and unforgiveness between men and women. This is the basic take of our culture now, the kind of feminism that wants to create enmity between men and women the kind of machoism that wants to belittle women. This is the kind of enmity that's stoked between ethnic groups, between classes. The wisdom of the world says that division and unforgiveness is wise and last. It doesn't want repentance, reconciliation, or love. The wisdom of God is really different, though, than identity politics because the wisdom of God says, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male, no female, for you are all one in Jesus. The wisdom of God says, when you become a Christian, your primary allegiance and identity is first and foremost to Jesus, which means people from different backgrounds and men and women and The rich and the poor can all be brought together into the church of Jesus and made one because Christ is our unity. We can build with a post-Christian sexual ethic. The wood, hay, and straw of the world says, consent is all that matters. Follow every urge and every desire. Build your identity on your urges and desires. Follow your lust into freedom. But the ageless, timeless wisdom of God says, flee from sexual immorality. By the way, assuming that Christians are tempted with sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, that you have been, that you are not your own? You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let me give you one more, because it's perhaps the very air that we breathe as Americans. We can build with pop psychology. What's increasingly happening in our country is even Christians have a therapeutic worldview more than we have a biblical worldview. And what we do is we use a therapeutic worldview to evaluate what the, what the word of God says instead of using the word of God to evaluate what therapy says and what's in bounds and out of bounds. The wisdom of the world in this moment 
says that our greatest problem is not thinking more highly of ourselves. Our problem is that we're not man-centered enough. But the wisdom of God that lasts forever says that your problem is not an inability to self-actualize, but our problem is alienation from God and one another due to sin. The wisdom of God says that we're not defined primarily as victims, even if bad things have happened to us. We're not primarily victims with excuses, but we are part of the brokenness of the world. We're a part of the problem. And we're not offered a victim mentality. We're offered responsibility to come to God in repentance to be made whole. And the list goes on and on. What Paul is saying is the foundation of Jesus is the eternal wisdom of God. And anything you build on that foundation that's importing worldly wisdom is actually not wise and it won't last past the great day. And what this means is that what we build on the foundation will be tested and revealed. It will be tested and revealed. Every church is a mixture, including this church, every church. And until the return of Jesus on this side of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, every church is a mixture of the timeless eternal foundation of Jesus crucified and raised and some things that are precious, gold and precious stones that look like Jesus, reflect Jesus and adorn the gospel and dumb stuff that's not gonna last past the great day that we all think is awesome. And every church in every age is invited by God's word to do the work of humble, prayerful, repentant reformation so that we could, by God's grace, be a little bit less of a mixture. And the way that we do that is by being so amazed at the glory of God in Jesus, so caught up and so deeply in pursuit of looking at, understanding God's wisdom in the gospel, that what starts to happen is we're able to smell out and sniff the counterfeits of the world that don't last. That we're able to look at the foundation and then evaluate the building materials that we're bringing into the church and to ask the question, does this fit on the foundation of Jesus Christ? And what Paul says at the end of this is really interesting. It's this crazy invitation to all of us be humble and repentant lovers of the church. To love God and not love the church doesn't make sense in the wisdom of the Bible. There is no such thing as a churchless Christianity. God loves his church, and he invites all Christians and all leaders to work together that the church would be more of a pure mixture. And he gives us grace that even though, even though God loves the church and cares about the church, we're probably gonna screw up the way that we build a little bit, and on the great day, we'll still be saved, though we'll smell a little bit like smoke. That's what he's saying. But... There's a difference between being in the church and seeing her warts and her wrinkles and still loving her, seeing her imperfections and even carrying wounds from the church because the church is a collection of sinners saved by grace and being actively opposed to the work of God in the church and working for her destruction. Paul says, do you not know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. And this is just a sober warning that we are to care about the church and fight for the purity of the church. And even when we're tempted to give up and walk away, we're to remember that God's building a temple out of living stones. 
And that work is gonna be messy until the day of the Lord. So let us, not be, let us not be passive in engaging the life of God and let us not be overly harsh or critical in engaging the work of God. But let's link arms and let's use our gifts and our time and our talent to see the mission of God advance through his church.